Jerry Whelan, you're an Irish Jesuit and Director of Fundamental Theology in the Jesuit Gregorian University in Rome. And we're here to talk about uh, 10 years of Pope Francis' uh, pontificate. A lot of things have happened in those 10 years. A lot of things have happened in the world in those 10 years. So maybe a look back for you, maybe the standout uh, moments for you of what you think has been enhanced by his papacy, first of all. Uh, interesting question, of course. So, spontaneously, his first letter, apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, uh, it was called, it was great fun for me because it was the time when I started to read up about Pope Francis. So I really hadn't known much about Pope Francis 10 years ago when he was elected. Uh, so it was an, an exciting read to get the background on him. But basically, this document looked like a manifesto for his papacy. And it has remained so for these 10 years. And by the way, it came straight out of a, a document that he had written for the bishops of Latin America in, in uh, 2007, uh, in, in their big meeting uh, of all of Latin America. That in turn had been a, an agenda for the action of the Church of Latin America. So he was really following a principle that he is the delegate of the Latin American church, bringing a certain vision of how to interpret Vatican II from there. Also, there was a discussion at the time of his election, was he a conservative, was he a liberal, progressive? And people seem to have opposite opinions on that. A reason was that he wasn't a standard liberation theologian person, which would have been more clearly left-wing, kind of Marx influences at some, at some level. People thought he was conservative, but he really came from a different tradition of uh, being very in favour of social justice, a, a different in, tradition of interpreting Vatican II, uh, the theology of the people of Latin America. He stated that very clearly in Evangelic Appian. So that was maybe the first milestone that I would really remember. Now, I've only two more milestones just spontaneously that come to me. Uh, well, maybe three, but the, the, um, the second one is about Act of Sea. So we're up to 2015, and the drama of that moment, because, you know, they say he's more popular outside the Catholic Church than inside the Catholic Church uh, sometimes, and not least on the issue of integral ecology. And to follow that a little bit and to, to see the, the, the connection of COP26, was it, uh, the International Meeting of Presidents in Paris, which was obviously going to be a very significant one of those COP uh, meetings, it was designed to feed into that. And by all accounts, it had a serious influence on the, the leaders. What they perceived as being the public opinion in their home countries was the real point. So it was a considerable success already at that time. And that has launched a movement ever since. And I've been involved with trying to integrate integral ecology more systematically into the teaching of theology here at the Gregorian. Perhaps a third one would be the moral theology point, the Amoris Laetitia um, encyclical. According to the manifesto, the, if, if Laudato Si was the Catholic social teaching, the engagement with the rest of the world, Amoris Laetitia was how do we handle our internal questions, moral theology, moral formation. Of course, this was destined to provoke most of the opposition against him from, from the right wing. But briefly, what he was saying was appealing for a process, the, the word graduality. The first phrase that is in Amoris Laetitia is 
we priests, we are called to form conscience, not to replace it. The sort of way that moral theology had been taught was, was just to, uh, obedience, because whatever, like the Pope says, you do it, uh, or it's a sin. Uh, so forming of conscience and accompaniment, a sort of spiritual direction approach to moral theology, which you will note preserves the doctrines, the teaching, uh, but it's just patient with people who, uh, for various reasons, are not able to live up to it. The, the line that I can't remember is that something like you write moral theology in a book, but you're not supposed to throw the book at people. So the uh, the notion of Catholic moral leadership has been throwing the book at, uh, at everybody. But then the final stepping stone really is synodality for Pope Francis. My image of that is talking to a senior German theologian who was visiting Rome, visiting the Gregorian. He was having these confidential meetings with Pope Francis. And he shared uh, to, just to some of us that he's there to try to get Pope Francis to start institutionalizing some of his ideas in a way that will stick after he's gone. Uh, that uh, Enough of the ideas already. Let's see some sort of constitutional shifting. Now, we all know, of course, that Pope Francis was busy with financial reform. I could have mentioned that as a, a landmark of the 10 years. But the focus of these couple of years now, I, I would go so far as to say the single focus of the, the late pontificate of Pope Francis is the notion of synodality. Now, he's written constitutions for the church that a successor pope would have to write another constitution to change. I mean, he could uh, do so, but it's, it's set in stone in that limited way. Again, it's in the spirit of Evangelicalium. It's all about process, listening, and engaging with the signs of the times, maintaining an open mind on various issues. Now, Pope Francis will always try to insist that that is also holding on to doctrine. It, it's not incompatible with being orthodox. So that's the key issue. Just to finally mention, I wouldn't call it a stepping stone, really, but it's very clear that the, the conflict is worse now than ever from the standpoint of Rome. From the left, from the right, uh, the criticisms of Pope Francis seem to be coming almost more open, perhaps from people who think that he's more sick than he is. He's not sick, he's just old. But, you know, it's almost as if it seemed like manoeuvring for, for the next Pope uh, at times, some of the way criticism of him are getting louder. Have you a handle on why you think that might be? A couple of things, uh, maybe, to say. First of all, there's a book recently out by an author called McGreevy, well worth reading, apparently, on the history of the Catholic Church from like the 1700s until Pope Francis. So there have been book launches here in Rome, uh, English language. One of his points is to say, look, it's ridiculous to criticise, well, Pope Francis or any of the other popes for the kind of problems of secularization that happened after Vatican II, for correlation is not the same as causation. McGreevy would say, look, the forces of secularization are such in Western culture that trouble was coming one way and another for the Christian religion to think its way through in these times. So better to bend rather than break in, in many ways. So Vatican II had to start shifting to modern ways of, of thinking, as Pope John XXIII said in, in opening Vatican II. What I'm getting at is with Pope Francis, you know, is there anywhere in the world that is not characterized by cultural polarization at present? 
So if Pope Francis is starting to open up, instead of like throwing the book at people, saying, look, we have to discuss these things, it's almost inevitable that the voices that you're going to get will be these polar opposites. But there's the very real factor of technological change driving these things, social, uh, media, etc. So that's the first point. It's that it couldn't be otherwise. We, we're never that different from the cultures that we're part of, uh, we Christians. The second point, this starts to move to my philosophical, theological interests. And, you know, I lose my audience uh, here. So excuse me if I go nerdy for a moment. I think there's a certain ambiguity in the thinking of Pope Francis. Uh, and by the way, it's really quite funny. For example, the right-wing opponents, they don't call him a left-wing, uh, left-winger anymore. They call him the zigzag Pope. Uh, so it's exasperating the way he seems to pop up on the left and then on the right. And they've all got their fingers burned at this stage. So the left don't really embrace him when he seems to briefly appear on their side, nor, nor on the right. There's a strength in that, and I think in the long term, there's going to be a need for to think it through more deeply in pontificates ahead of Pope Francis, or there's a task for theologians here to follow in, in the, the line of Pope Francis, thinking through some issues, to get a little bit beyond the zigzag phenomenon. I've tried to study a little bit of this. Obviously, there's, there's personality factors involved with, with Pope Francis. Is, is there something a little bit impulsive in some of his uh, decisions? Is there something at, at times not emphasizing the intellectual really, the questions that need to be thought through better? Apart from personality, I, I am pursuing the question uh, that there's an intellectual legacy in the theology that he's received that had a direct impact on Vatican II. It has to do with 1800s idealism and romanticism. These are questions that the church has been struggling with for 200 years. If you start to go to historical consciousness, do you go relativist? Okay. Uh, if, if you try to hold, to be clear that there's continuity of doctrine over the centuries, can you do so without throwing the book at people? What's the mean and how do you think it through so that it doesn't just become a zigzag, so you pop up on one side on one issue and another side on the other? Well, I work on that. I've spoken many times on these talks with you, Pat, about how I go in the direction of the thought of Bernard Lonergan, a philosopher, a theologian who's published 50 years ago a book called Method in Theology. So on the basis of his philosophy, he talks about method in theology. I think that's abidingly relevant because it, it addresses some of these deeper philosophical methodological dimensions. But actually, to complicate life, I'm even more enthusiastic in a certain way of it with a disciple of, of Lonergan, whose name is Bob Doran, Robert Doran, who expanded the thought of Lonergan in a way that I think is especially significant for expanding the Pope Francis legacy. I think that's really important because I think we can read a lot and that people are aware at a general level of the great changes he's made. He's a pastoral pope. He speaks the language of the people. He can really address them. And there, I think nobody can but doubt like his work on migrants as well. And you can hear his voice. Like he, I think it was The Guardian said he was one of the most necessary moral voices of our age. And I don't think anybody would can take that from him. And, I, and you're certainly not. But I think it's a fascinating insight that you've given us into the zigzag that he does he gets it from the left and he gets it from the right and that notion of maybe needing 
an underpinning philosophy that hasn't been resolved yet with the whole tendency to a universal truth that can never change. And then a relativism that depends on what you're having yourself in the 21st century and what the flavor of the day is. And I know we have spoken about that and I link through in this interview to a very interesting interview we did around that in terms of Lonergan and Dort. He is 86, Jerry. He's in a wheelchair, but he says he's not sick. He's just incapacitated with his knee. And he doesn't seem to have any interest in retiring. I find this hilarious. He's not the first pope to reach 10 years of, of a, a pontificate, but he's probably the first pope who spoke every year of his possible retirement soon. Talk about wasted journalistic space uh, on this topic. But I think he's actually kind of settling in because of the conflicts around that. He's always, I'm I want to kind of contradict myself, the zigzag point. There's another take I have on him, which is once a novice master, always a novice master in, in Jesuit terms. I talk about this with all the other Jesuits here. We all always remember the, the strong experience of the first year, two years of formation in the Jesuits. And novice masters who are getting inside your head, basically. The question is motivation, you see. It's not just what you might have done. Turning up might be as little as turning up late for class or something. But it's why you did it. So they get, in, get into the motivation. Uh, they have classically Ignatian, this question of, well, the reasons you do things, uh, the question of motivation. Is it spirit-led or is it not? So can you name your sin at times by tracing how a temptation unfolded and what's actually motivating you in spite of what you might tell yourself? Pope Francis Bergoglio was novice master for a short time, and it's what he really wanted to be. But he was made provincial at a fairly young age, and that was the end of that. But he was always, if you look at his talks, both as a Jesuit in authority, but now as bishop and pope, He'd get inside the head of people. He'd be getting to a motivational uh, side and often losing his audience because, uh, you know, he, the way he can talk about the devil, for example, or, uh, it's, it means that the enemy of the human spirit who has tempted you in terms of uh, Ignatian spirituality. The reason I think that he's not going to retire is that the wrong people want him to retire so much. So that's it. it it's another, again, an Ignatian principle that we call it adjure contract. If you notice that you're, you tend to eat too much at meals, darn it, you have to eat less than usual. You move in the other direction. That's a killer, I can tell you, that uh, that one. So he's doing the agile contra, I think. It's a reason he's entrenching more. So I, I don't think we're going to see a resignation anytime soon. And finally, he is also a Pope who has admitted his own weaknesses. He says he didn't handle the child sexual abuse crisis properly, uh, uh, particularly at the beginning. And he does seem to have, at some point, also a sense of humour about the way we are all human and he sees himself as as human too. And that he seems to have held on to throughout his 10 years. He, He hasn't been too affected by the glitz of the papacy, would you say? Absolutely, certainly not. Yeah, this is one of the things I'm most proud about, about the Jesuits, you might say. I, I'd like to think that I know quite a number of examples of Jesuits. It's something I hope is true, that the kind of honesty, this radical honesty, it comes straight out of the spiritual exercises. Because you, you do this intense self-awareness thing, 
But then ultimately you're convinced the news is not all that bad because God loves you. So you can be a sinner and you can admit it with a certain joyfulness almost. Of course you repent and try not to do it. But there's this radical honesty so that can characterize the Jesuit at his best, I think, and Pope Francis has it 